You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I'm excited to share with you a few more lessons given by the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I thought today I would share with you Sheen's reflections on the meaning of the Mass. And we as Catholics know that the Mass, the Eucharist, is the source and summit of our lives. And so it's nice to have that explained to us. And so we'll also share another reflection after uh, learning about the Mass uh, entitled human freedom, and it is uh, lesson four in Bishop Sheen's 50-part series on the Catechism. And so let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sit back and enjoy this beautiful reflection on the meaning of the Mass. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass and try to make it clear to you, if I can. I'm sure there are some young people here in this church who have said I don't want to go to Mass. I don't want to go to church. I don't get anything out of it. Do you know the reason why? Because you don't bring anything to it. Now, some of you boys, for example, I am sure have mothers who are not the least bit interested in football. You say, come, Mom, look at this game. It's wonderful. She gets nothing out of it. Why? Because she doesn't bring any knowledge of football to it. Think of how many people would not go to an opera. They would find it boring. That's because they bring no knowledge of music to it. Just suppose that you were suddenly put down in, the, in Athens on the hill of the Areopagus. Would you understand it? Would you think, oh, this is where Socrates defended himself, and this is where St. Paul gave that great discourse to the senators of Athens. You'd have to bring something to 
Greece in order to understand it. And so certainly you'll get nothing out of it because you've made no sacrifice, no effort to understand what the Mass is. Very simply, what the Mass is, is reaching to Calvary and laying hold with your hands of the cross of Christ, with Christ on it, and you plant it down here, today. Whenever a Mass is celebrated, we take the cross and we plant it down in Nairobi, we plant it down in Tokyo, we plant it in New York, we plant it in this city. That's what the Mass is, the continuation of Calvary. And in order to take a part in it, you have to bring little crosses. Our blessed Lord said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Everyone has a cross. For example, you young students, you've got the cross of spelling, of mathematics, and of obedience. And mother says, do the dishes. That's a little cross. And the older people have different kind of crosses. And we bring all of our crosses here and we plant them down alongside of that great cross of Christ. And we mass them all together under him. That is the mass. It has three acts. It's like a great drama. Just suppose that four or five centuries before Christ there was a great drama because that was the great age of drama. A drama presented that moved hearts, purged souls, which the wise old Greeks said was the purpose of drama anyway. But it was played only once. And if you were at that theater and your soul was bettered because you witnessed the drama, you would say, what a pity. Everyone in the world should see this. How could that be done? Well, it could be done by establishing road companies. New actors, same lines, same drama, but appearing on the different stages of the world. Apply this now to the death of our Lord. This drama was played once. But the night of the Last Supper, our blessed Lord said, I am going to prepare this drama so that it will be enacted all over the world and hearts will be purified and souls purged. So he established road companies. As he said to his apostles and his priests, do this, repeat it. Same lines, same purpose, only the stages are different. We will now follow the three acts of the drama. In the first act, you offer yourself to Christ. Act one. Act two, you die. You die with him. Act three, because you died with him, now you get new life. Act one, where you offer yourself as the offertory. Act two, your death with Christ. 
the consecration. And thirdly, rising to a new life is Holy Communion. Now follow me through these three acts. Act one, you offer yourself. You bring yourself to Christ and say, I want to be one with you in your great act of redemption. When a, when a Mass begins, the Lord looks out from heaven and he says, I can't die again in this nature I took from Mary. This nature is glorified. But Peter, Paul, Mary, Anne, will you give me your human nature? Offer yourself to me and I will die again in you and let you pass through the same stages of life as I passed through. Now, how do you offer yourself to the Lord? Not just by being present. Not just that. But by using symbols of bread and wine. So when the bread and wine is brought to the altar, you are brought to the altar. Why did our Lord say, bring bread and wine? Well, first of all, because no two substances better signify unity than bread and wine. As bread is made from a multiplicity of grains of wheat and wine from a multiplicity of grapes, so we who are many are one in mind and heart with Christ. Then furthermore, when we bring bread and wine, the substances which have most traditionally nourished mankind. When we bring that which gives us life, we're bringing ourselves. And then we're also bringing part of creation. We're, we're taking some elements out of creation, namely bread and wine, and we're saying to God, these are going to be wholly yours. And someday this, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Everything in creation will be totally subject to you. But this, this is the first fruit of total giving of creation to Christ. So in the offertory, therefore, you become present on the altar. You are on the paten. You are in the chalice. Under the form of bread and wine. That is your symbol. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons the collection is taken up at the offertory is to be a symbol of your self-sacrifice. It buys the bread and wine, helps the sacrifice. You see, if I were pleading for a collection, that's the idea that I would develop. But I'm not. But I merely want to indicate to you now that you're on the altar. That's the end of Act One. Now we come to Act Two. You die. You are crucified. We cannot live to Christ unless we die to our lower nature. So our Lord now is representing his death at the consecration. And you are with him, so you die with him. Now I will tell you how that is done. First of all, how do we represent at the consecration of the Mass his death? Now think about this. How did our Lord die on the cross? 
by the separation of blood from his body. Here were great fountains, fountain in hand, right and left, fountains in the feet, the fountain of the heart. And the very last drop of his blood came from his body with the piercing of the pericordium, the heart, so that our Lord was practically drained, therefore, of blood on the cross. And he died by this tearing apart of blood from body. For as the Old Testament puts it, life is in the blood. Now, we reenact this death by the separate consecration of bread and wine. The priest does not say at the altar, this is my body and my blood. That would be life. But first, this is my body. Then over the wine, this is my blood. That separate consecration of bread and wine is like a tearing apart rending asunder a blood from body and that is the way Christ died on the cross. So we sacramentally reenact the death of Christ at the consecration. But you are with him. So you have to die with him. Die to that which is evil, to pride and lust and envy and gluttony, sloth, avarice. At the moment of consecration, therefore, you have to say the words of consecration in their secondary sense. The primary meaning of the words of consecration we know. This becomes the body of Christ, this becomes the blood of Christ. But there is a secondary meaning. And at the consecration, you should be saying as every priest says, when I consecrate the bread and wine, I always have not only the intention of making present the body and blood of Christ, but I say to myself, as you must say, this is my body. This is my blood. I care not if the accidents of my life remain, my duties, my avocation, my responsibility in life. These are species. Let them stay as they are, but what I am, substantially, body, soul, intellect, will, I'm thine, O Lord. This is the totality of myself. I die with you. That's the consecration. So you're dead with Christ. But no one ever dies to Christ without receiving new life. Now we come to the communion, Act 3. And this is one of the beautiful mysteries of communion. To understand it, I'm going to let you view nature. In the springtime, if the sunlight 
the phosphates and the carbons in the earth could speak. They would say to the plants, unless you eat me, you shall not have life in you. If the plants could speak in the grass of the field, they would say to the animals, unless you eat me, you shall not have life in you. And if the plants and animals could speak, they would say to us, unless you eat me, you shall not have life in you. And Christ says to us in communion, unless you eat me, you shall not have life in you. And the law of transformation holds sway. Chemicals are transformed into plants, plants into animals, animals into man, and man into Christ. We now, therefore, have his life in us. This becomes, then, the great moment of love. We've died to that which is lower. Now we're going to have the higher life. And this higher life involves, as in marriage, lover, beloved, and love. The husband gives self to wife, the wife gives self to husband. Out of the lover being defeated by the love of the beloved, there comes the ecstasy of love. And what the union of husband and wife is in marriage, that communion is to the spirit. The union of our soul in Christ, lover and beloved, produces the ecstasy of love. This, then, is the third act. It has another aspect, which I will pass over quickly for a matter of time only, and it is forgotten aspect. When we study theology, it's hardly mentioned. In scripture, it's mentioned constantly. And that is that when we receive communion, we have to bear this death of Christ in our lives. We constantly have to deny ourselves in order that the Christ life may emerge. Now see how nature represents that. If the grass and the lilies and the roses could speak, uh, they would say to the, to the air and to the sunlight and the chemicals, would you like to live in me? I'm a plant. You're only crystals. Well, you can't live in me the way you are. You have to be changed. Die to yourself, then you live in me. If the animal could speak, it would say to the grass, you cannot see, you cannot taste, you cannot move from place to place, you cannot change from sunlight to shadow. I can. I have a higher kingdom than yours. Would you like to live in my kingdom? Not the way you are. You've got to be taken up from the earth, ground beneath the jaws of death, and then only can you live in my kingdom. To the animals, we say, you cannot think, you cannot scan the heavens, 
I have a higher life than you. Would you like to live in me? Then submit yourself to the knife. Shed your blood. Otherwise, you cannot live in my kingdom. So our Lord says to us, unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, you cannot, not you will not, you cannot be my disciple. Communion, therefore, is not only the taking in the life of Christ, as I explained. And incidentally, for the students of biology, let me tell you that the first process I described is the anabolic. And the sacrifice, which I am now describing, is the catabolic process of nature. So now in the in St. Paul, we have the second element of communion. St. Paul says, know you not that as often as you eat of this bread or drink of this chalice, you announce the death, the death of the Lord until he come. So communion, therefore, is an incorporation to the higher life of Christ, but inasmuch as we have to go back into the world, we're going to take with him our death. This is the Mass. Do you know that I believe that when we go before the judgment seat of God, our greatest regret is not that we were more faithful to the holy sacrifice of the Mass? What a blessing is our faith. Now, I have no reason to assume, absolutely none, to assume that you good people are not at Mass every morning. Every morning I've been here, look at the crowds. Now, I'm glad to see that you people are, are attendants at daily Mass. This is marvelous. I wouldn't come back some morning, sneak up on you to see if you were here. I wouldn't do that. I just assume that you would be. Now, I hope I've made this clear to you, young people especially, what the Mass is. Always think of it as three acts and how you are united with the cross of our Lord. But since I, I have been tiring to you, and even at the risk of keeping you a little longer, I'm going to tell you... a. A story about the Mass and the Eucharist. This incident happened in China. A bishop was arrested by the communists, put in prison, and he told one of the missionary sisters to whom he gave the tabernacle key to remove the Blessed Sacrament from the chapel. It was on the second floor of his house. Lest it be defiled by the communists who would take over his residence. The bishop was in prison for two or three years. He wasted away to skin and bones wore a black stocking cap, a black kimono, was too weak to stand. During the few moments of the day they were released from the prison. In the prison yard he had to be supported by two fellow communist, or rather Chinese prisoners. The nun went to the chapel 
took the Blessed Sacrament, but she hid it in a loaf of bread. And as she closed the door of the chapel and was about to come down, a communist colonel came up the stairs and said, I'm taking over this house. I have the key to the chapel. He tried to open the door and it would not open. He said, here you open it. She said, I can't. My hands are filled with bread. Put the bread on the stairs. She said, the stairs are dirty. Then give me the bread. She said she reached him, the Blessed Sacrament, hidden in the bread, with such reverence and fear that he laid hold of the loaf as if it might have been a baby. But he cocked a gun in case she should turn on him. And then he gave back the Blessed Sacrament. The nun was later on put in prison beaten with rods and underwent a kind of a bloody sweat from the terrific agony. Finally came the death march and the bishop was put out in the march between two fellow Chinese prisoners. The communist colonel took a sack that was loaded with perhaps stones weighed about 20 or 30 pounds, and tied it on the bishop's back, and then tied the rope in such a fashion that the weight would tighten the rope and he would eventually be choked to death in the march. But the communists would not kill anyone. The sister who told me this story was back in the line of march, and she saw the communist colonel tie this bag around his neck, and she broke the line of march, and she said, don't do that. Look at the man. It was a kind of an H.A. homo. The communist colonel looked at her and then to the face of the bishop and seemed to see pain for the first time in his life. Then he called her a dog and told her to get back in line. She watched the weaving of the prisoners as they made their death march. And after a a mile or two, she caught the sight of the bishop, still supported by the two fellow Chinese prisoners, but the sack was not on his back. It was on the back of the communist colonel. I said, why did the communist colonel take it off his back, off the bishop's back? And she said, because he once carried the Blessed Sacrament. The last we know of that communist colonel is that he was put in prison for helping the bishop. The bishop died on the death march. The sister today is still bearing the effects of it. And this bishop in prison, she told me, used to read mass. He was the only one in prison who was ever given wine. Not through any act of charity on the part of the communists. This was just divine providence making it possible for him to say Mass. And she said, no Mass in the Gothic cathedral, surrounded by all the pomp of liturgy, could ever equal the beauty of this frail bishop 
full of prison vermin and sores, leaning up against the wall with a tin tray and loaf of bread and a small glass of rice wine. Moving his fingers over the tin tray and then pronouncing the words of consecration, and during the day secretly giving communion to prisoners who had pronounced the right word, the code word, which was the same code word in the early church, fish. Why fish? Well, the Greek word for fish is ichthus. And in our letters, I-X-T-H-U-S, ichthus. And in the early church, the I stood for Jesus, the X for Christus, the Theu of God, U for we are Son, S for Sator, Savior, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior of the world. Then I could tell you, too, of the way that Mass was read at Dachau, under the threat of the Nazis, and how priests underwent every kind of torture to make it possible to offer the holy sacrifice at the Mass. You're really assisting at Calvary. Realize its meaning. For there's a law that runs all through nature. We live by what we slay. The food that we have torn up from the earth, the animals that have been butchered, we live by what we slay. And through the marvelous paradox of divine grace. We who have crucified Christ by our sins, now through the mercy of communion, live by what we have slain. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living. Hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living. And I just want to say that that was a very beautiful description of the meaning of the Mass. And um, I love how he began with that commentary of the children saying, I don't want to go to Mass. It's boring. I don't get anything out of it. And how we hear that so many times. And so... Uh, he really did address that concern. So uh, I am more excited than ever to attend Mass now and to participate in this great, uh, I want to say, prayer, which it is. The Mass is a prayer, but uh, the great sacrament that's offered with the Eucharist and Holy Communion. So anyway, so let's learn our catechism together now. Uh, Bishop Sheen's going to give a lesson entitled Human Freedom. So please enjoy this. Peace be to you. No one is born an atheist, as no one is born a skeptic, that is to say, uh, one who doubts the possibility of ever discovering truth. These attitudes are made, and they are made less by the way one thinks than by the way one lives. If we do not live as we think, 
we soon begin to think as we live. We suit our philosophy to our actions. That is bad. Let me tell you the story of an atheist in London, England. I used to do considerable work in St. Patrick's Parish in Soho Square in that city. One Sunday morning, I came into the front of the church to read Mass, and I found a young lady standing in front of the communion rail, haranguing the congregation. She was saying to the congregation, There is no God. There is too much evil in the world. Reason cannot transcend sense. It is impossible to conclude to his existence. Every night, she said, I go out to Hyde Park. I talk against God. I circulate England, Scotland, and Wales with pamphlets denouncing a belief in the existence of God. And on and on she went. By that time, I was up to the communion rail. I said to her, Young lady, I'm very happy to hear that you say you believe in the existence of God. She said, you silly fool, I don't. I said, I understood you to say just the contrary. Suppose I said that I went out every night to Hyde Park and talked against 20-footed ghosts and 10 centaurs. Suppose I circulated England, Scotland, and Wales, denouncing a belief in these ghosts and in their centaurs. What would happen to me? She said, you would be crazy. They would lock you up. Well, I said, do you not put God in exactly the same category as these fantasies of the imagination, namely ghosts and centaurs? Why then would I be crazy attacking ghosts and centaurs and you are not crazy attacking God? She said, I don't know. Why? I said, because when I attack these phantoms of the imagination, I am attacking something that is unreal. But when you attack God, you are attacking something just as real as the thrust of a sword or an embrace. Do you think I said that we would have any such thing in the world as prohibition unless there was something to prohibit? Could there ever be anti-cigarette laws unless there were cigarettes? How can there be atheism unless there is something to atheate? She said, I hate you. Well, I said, now you've given the answer. Atheism is not a doctrine. It is a cry of wrath. There are indeed two kinds of atheists. There are the simple persons who have read a smattering of science and and they conclude, probably, that there is no God. But the other type of atheist is that type that might be called militant, such as the communists. They really do not deny the existence of God. They challenge God. It is the very reality of God that saves them 
from insanity. It is the reality of God that gives them a real object against which they may vent their hate. Now, after discussing the attitudes that any soul may take in the face of proofs, we will investigate the knowledge of God. First of all, how does God know? Well, God does not know the way we know. We know by looking at things. God knows by looking at himself. We can get a faint idea of the way God knows from an architect. Before an architect puts up a building, he can tell you if he is the designer. The size of the building, its dimensions, the location of each room, its height, the number of elevators it will have, and so forth. How does he know all of this before the building is built? Because he is the designer of the becoming of the building. Now, God is a cause, too. But God is not just a cause of the becoming of the universe. He's the cause of the very being of the universe. And just as an architect needs only look into his own mind to understand something of the nature of that which he has designed, as a poet knows his verses in his own mind, so God knows all things by looking at himself. He does not need to wait for you to turn a corner before he knows that you're doing so. He does not see little boys putting their fingers into the cookie jar and conclude they're stealing. Everything is naked and open to the eyes of God. For example, he does not just look down at a debutante at a coming out party and then be on tender hooks for the next five years wondering if she's going to find a man. There is no future in God. There is no past in God. There is only the present. We can get a faint idea what this knowledge is from an example of this kind. Suppose you walk through a cemetery in which you saw a succession of gravestones belonging to the same family. As you walked along slowly, you saw written on the first gravestone the inscription, Ezekiel Hingenbottom, died 1938. Then you walked a little further, and you saw another tombstone reading, Hiram Hingenbottom, died 1903. A few steps more, Nahum Hingenbottom, died in 1883. And then still further on, Reginald Hingenbottom died in 1861. These tombstones would indicate a succession of events that happened in space and time. But now suppose you flew over that cemetery in a plane. Then you would see all at once. And that is how history must look to one who is outside of time. Another example may make clear the knowledge of God. 
Imagine you were looking at a motion picture reel. This motion picture reel has the full story or drama on written on every single inch of it. Suppose the motion picture reel were conscious. If it were, it would know the whole story. But if you and I were to know the whole story, we would have to wait until that screen, or rather that film, was unrolled upon the screen. We would only know successively what the real knows all at once. And that is the way it is with the knowledge of God. Now coming a little more closer to that knowledge, because God knows all things and because he is creator, it follows that every single thing in the world was made according to an idea or a pattern existing in the divine mind. Look round about you. You see a bridge, a statue, a painting, a building. Before any of these things began to be, they existed in the mind of the one who designed or planned them. In like manner, there is not a tree, a flower, a bird, an insect in the world that does not in some way correspond to an idea existing in the divine mind. The pattern of them has been wrapped up, as it were, in matter. And what our knowledge does, and what science does, is to unravel and unwrap, as it were, this matter in order to rediscover the ideas of God. And it's because God put his ideas or patterns in things that we are assured of the rationality and purposiveness of the cosmos. It is that that makes science possible. If there were no human minds in the universe, if there were no angelic minds, things would still be true because they corresponded with the idea existing in the mind of God. Naturally, we cannot bring up a subject like the knowledge of God without meeting certain difficulties. One of the most obvious ones is, well, if God knows all things, he knows then what is going to happen to every single soul in the world. He knows, for example, whether I am going to be saved or I am going to be lost. Therefore, I am predetermined. Well, that was an argument that was used a few centuries ago. And as a matter of fact, it was part of the philosophy of Eastern peoples. Now, in order to understand the knowledge of God, you must make a distinction between foreknowledge and predetermination. The two are not identical. God, indeed, does foreknow everything, 
but he does not predetermine us independently of our will and our merits. Just suppose that you knew the stock market very well. And because of your superior knowledge of business conditions, you said that such and such a stock within six months would be selling ten points higher than it is now. Suppose six months later it actually sold ten points higher. Would you have predetermined and caused it to be ten points higher? Although you foreknew it. There were other influences, were there not, besides your superior knowledge. To make it still more concrete, in the early colonial days of this country, a farmer set out for the town to make some purchases. He had gone but a short distance and he came back and he told his wife he had forgotten his gun. His wife was a perfectly good determinist. And his wife argued this way. Either you are predestined to be shot by the Indians, or you are not predestined to be shot by the Indians. If you are predestined to be shot by the Indians, the gun will do you no good. If you are not predestined to be shot by the Indians, you will not need your gun. The husband said, suppose I am predestined to be shot by the Indians on condition I do not have my gun. And in like manner, God knows all things, but he still leaves us with freedom. How can God influence you and still leave you free? Well, consider various kinds of influences. First, turn a key in the door. There is the impact of something material on something material. And the result is the opening of a door. That is one kind of influence. The influence of a material thing on another material thing. But there's still another kind of influence. In the springtime, you plant a seed in the garden. The sun, the moisture, the atmosphere, the chemicals in the earth all begin to use an influence upon that seed. It certainly is not the same kind of action as turning a piece of steel in a lock. There are tremendous capacities for growth in that seed. And what most awakens the seed to growth is something invisible namely the sun. Now go a stage high. Consider the case of a father talking to his son, trying to influence him, for example, to become a doctor. What actually influences the son is some invisible truth, as well as the deep love of the father for the son and of the son for the father. What love actually does is to bring out in the sun a free act. 
The son is not obliged to do exactly what his father wants. He is free to do the contrary. But truth and love have so moved him that he regards what he does as the very perfection of his personality. Later on, he may say, I owe everything I have to that conversation I had with my father. I really began to discover my true self. Now, in some such mysterious way as this, God works upon your soul. He does not work like a key in a lock. He works less visibly than a father on a son. But there are the same mysterious words. I and you. Because God is the very embodiment of love, his love inspires you to be what you were meant to be. A free person in the highest sense of the word. The more you are led by God's love, the more you become yourself. And it is all done without ever losing your freedom. That still leaves another great problem. Namely, the problem of evil. You may ask, if God is power and love, Why does he create this kind of world and why does he permit evil? We are not going to give here a complete explanation of evil and a complete explanation of evil cannot be given here below. We will only just give certain indications of why it is possible. Let us begin with the question, why God made this kind of world? must realize that this is not the only kind of a world that God could have made. He might have made 10,000 other kinds of worlds in which there would be no pain and no struggle and no sacrifice. But this is the best possible kind of world that God could have made for the purpose that he had in mind. Notice the distinction we're making. For example, a little boy says to his father, who is a distinguished architect, I want you to build me a birdhouse. The architect designs a birdhouse. It's not the best house that that skilled father can design, but it may be the very best house that the architect could design for the purpose that he had in mind, namely, to build a house for sparrows. Now that brings us to this other question. What purpose now did God have in mind in making this work? The answer is that God intended to build a moral universe. He will from all eternity to build a stage on which characters would emerge. He might have made a world without morality, without virtue, without character. He might have made a world in which each and every one of us would have sprouted goodness with the same necessity, for example, that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. But he chose not to make that kind of a world. Not to make a world in which we would be good as fire is hot and ice is cold. He willed to make a moral universe in order that by the right use of the gift of freedom, characters might emerge. What does God care for things piled into an infinity of space, even though they be diamonds, 
For if all the orbits of heaven were so many jewels, glittering as the sun, what would their external but undisturbed balance mean to him in comparison with a single character which could take hold of the tangled skeins of a seemingly wrecked and ruined life and weave out of them the beautiful tapestry of saintliness and holiness. The choice before God in creating the world, therefore, lay between creating a purely mechanical universe peopled by mere automaton machines or creating a spiritual universe in which there would be a choice of good and evil. All right, grant it then that God chose to make a moral universe in which there would be character. What was the condition of such a universe? He had to make us free. That is to say, he had to endow us with the power to say yes and no and to be captains of our own fate and destiny. Morality implies responsibility and duty, but these can exist only on condition of freedom. Stones have no morals because they are not free. We do not condemn ice because it is melted by heat. Praise and blame can be bestowed only on those who are masters of their own will. It is only because you, for example, have the possibility of saying no that there's so much charm in your character when you say yes. Take the quality of freedom away from anyone and it is no more possible for him to be virtuous than it is for the blade of grass which he treads beneath his feet. Take freedom away from life and there will be no more reason to honor the fortitude of martyrs than there would be, for example, oh, to honor the flames which kindle their faggots. Is it therefore any impeachment of God that he chose not to reign over an empire of chemicals? If God has deliberately chosen the kind of empire not to be ruled by force but by freedom, and if we find that his subjects are able to act against his will as stars and atoms cannot, Does this not prove that he has possibly given to those human beings the chance of breaking allegiance in order that there might be meaning and purpose in that allegiance when they freely chose to give it? Here we have, then, a mere suggestion as to the possibility of evil. It's bound up with the freedom of man. Man who's free to love is free to hate. He was free to obey, is free to rebel. Virtue in this concrete order is possible only in those spheres in which it is possible to be vicious. A man can be a saint only in a church in which it is possible to be a devil. You say, well, if I were God, I would destroy evil. Well, if you did that, you would destroy human freedom. God will not destroy freedom if we do not want any dictators on this earth Certainly we do not want any dictators in the kingdom of heaven. And those, therefore, who would blame God for allowing man freedom to go on hindering and thwarting his work are like those who, seeing blots and smudges and errors in the student's notebook, would condemn the teacher for not snatching away the book 
and doing the copy himself. Just as the object of the teacher is sound education and not the production of neat and well-written copybooks, so the object of God is the development of souls and not the production of biological entities. And you say, well, if God knew I would sin, why did he make me? God did not make any of us as sinners. We make ourselves. In that sense, we are creators. Therefore, the greatest gift of God to man short of grace is the gift of human freedom and the power to love him in return. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Well, Radio Maria family, thank you again for joining me for this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living. Please join us next time as we continue to share these beautiful meditations given by the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. And so until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.